Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to John chapter 6. We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of John uh, this morning. And before we turn to God's Word, let me just make a couple brief announcements. Uh, The first is you'll notice out in the lobby a stack of cards like this. uh, announcement about our Easter service, which is in uh, two Sundays from today, uh, and a, a Monday Thursday service on Thursday of, of Holy Week at 6.30 here at the church, and a Good Friday service at 6.30 here at the church. And if you uh, don't have a history where you've been a part of uh, Holy Week services, we'd love for you to come and be a part of that. Maybe uh, experience something new. I know for a number of people who came to our Ash Wednesday service, they'd never been to an Ash, actually I'd never been to an Ash Wednesday service until our Ash Wednesday. And it was a really powerful uh, time together. So uh, if you missed that one, come and be a part of these and grab one of these cards and you know, grab a few of them that you could give to your family members you wanted to invite to church or, or neighbors or coworkers or friends. And uh, it's a good time. And consider if you invite someone to church, maybe have them over to your house after to share a meal together. Uh, you might know people who don't have fa- family here in Whatcom County and uh, would love to uh, spend a day uh, with you. So take these cards and, uh, and you can share them with your friends. One other uh, announcement I wanted to make is on, on, in our insert, announcement insert, there's a, a, a note about Church Community Builder, which is our church's online communication tool that we use as a church. And if you've started coming to Christ Church, I mean, maybe you're just worshiping here, maybe you're not even a member yet, but uh, you want to be connected, definitely go on Church Community Builder, follow the instructions on there. And uh, that's where we talk about things that are happening in the church or ways that you can, you know, people have needs in the church, ways that you can serve. And, uh, but absolutely, if you want to be connected, you want to be on Church Community Builder. So uh, make sure to go home and get signed up for that. So that's what we have for announcements. We are, are turning now to uh, God's Word. John chapter 6, uh, picking up in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we praise you that though you are invisible to us, eternal, wise, that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts. You have revealed yourself to us in your holy word. It is our deep desire to hear from you. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word now, that you would give sight to the blind, that you would breathe life into us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us now about our Savior and grant us faith to receive him and obedience to follow him. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we are looking uh, this morning at the famous story of Jesus uh, walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee, which 
I personally think is the strangest of all of Jesus' miracles. And because mo- usually when Jesus does a miracle, the purpose of the miracle is to set right something that's been broken, right? So, you know, some, there, you have a lame man and he heals the lame man. Or someone's blind and, and he gives them sight. Or you have people who are hungry and he feeds them or even raises the dead. He reverses death. So it's kind of all of his miracles are an undoing of the curse of the fall. He, uh, you know, he's kind of making things normal again. But walking on water. Why is he walking on water? It's kind of a show, it's a magic trick. And, uh, well, I remember the first time I heard this story. I was in seventh grade. It was in the locker room before PE. And there was this kid that was over in the corner. He had a crowd of other boys around him. It was almost like he was giving a sermon to them. And he was talking to them about Jesus walking on water. I'd never heard of that before. And I kind of, you know, I joined the crowd like, what's... Jesus walking on water. And he says the reason Jesus could walk on water is because he believed 100% he could do it. And if you believed 100% without even a hair of doubt in your mind, you too could walk on water. I was like, I wonder if that's true. <laughs> and I was, you know, next time I'm at the pool, I'm like, close my eyes. I believe. And I was going to try to do it. And, uh, of course, the idea comes from Matthew's version of the story. If you go read Matthew's version of the story, it's not just Jesus who walks on water, but Peter, too, goes out and walks on the water, and then the storm gets worse, and Peter gets afraid, and he starts sinking, and Jesus grabs him, and he says, you know, it's because of his lack of faith that he couldn't walk on the water. Is that what this story is about? That if you really believe, and you have no doubts in your mind, then you can physically do anything. Well, I think it's certainly not what John wants to communicate through his version of the story. And I'll tell you, a rule of thumb, whenever you're reading the Bible, you know, some of you say, How? you know, there's all these interpretations of the Bible. How do you know which one's the right one? Well, there are a few kind of rules of thumb. And one of them is that the most important part of any story is when Jesus speaks or when God speaks. Their words are usually the most important part of the story. And what uh, does Jesus what are, what are Jesus' words in this passage? Well, they're in verse 20 where it says, But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And those words, it is I, actually in Greek literally are the words I am. I am, do not be afraid. And this passage isn't so much about what we can do if we believe hard enough. It is about who Jesus is. And I think that the, strange of the strangeness of the story about why is he walking on water uh, lets us into a mysterious part of Jesus' person because uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God. He's fully man. There's, in some ways, he's like us, and in some ways, he's not like us at all. And the strangeness of the story is letting us into the part that is not like us, Jesus' divinity. And so I'd like to focus this morning on uh, those words from Jesus in verse 20, which teach us two simple things. That Jesus is God, and so we should not fear. Jesus is God, so we should not fear. Two simple things that our Lord wants to teach us from the, this amazing story of our Lord walking on the Sea of Galilee. So two things this morning, and the first is this. Jesus is God. Now, various commentators on this passage have... Uh, said that, you know, what's really happening is Jesus is not walking on the water. He's walking beside the water because actually that 
that word on the sea can also be translated but beside the sea. And what they're saying, he's not walking. You know, they're in the boat. He's over on the beach. And he's walking along beside them on the beach. And now part of the problem with that, if you go to Matthew and Mark's versions of the story, it's very clear that Jesus is walking on the water. And you, it's also a question, why are the disciples so afraid if Jesus is walking on the beach? That doesn't seem like a frightening thing. But part of the rationale why commentators say that is they say, well, the gospel is about God becoming fully human. And real humans don't walk on water. And so it would damage the doctrine of Christ's humanity if we said that he walked on water. But of course, what's the answer to that? This passage isn't so much about Jesus' humanity. This passage is about his divinity, his divine nature. It's showing us that he is God. And these verses, we see three things in particular about Jesus' divinity, that Jesus is the God of nature, that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, and that Jesus is the God of the nations. And all three of those are basically a way of saying Jesus is the God of everything, but they all kind of come at it from a different angle. So we're going to look at each of those. So first, Jesus is the God of nature. We we made this point last week, but we see it again here. And in the beginning of the Gospel of John, the very opening verses of the Gospel of John say this about Jesus, that all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And it's saying that basically if something exists, it only exists because Jesus invented it, he created it, and then he, hold it, he continues to hold it together. And of all the living things in the world, you know, we always, we always talk about, like, what's the life force that's in the trees and in the animals and, you know, makes things have life? Jesus is the fountainhead of all life. All life comes from him. And so he is the God of nature itself. And one of the things about nature is that nature has a certain wild power to it. Right? We see some of the wild power of nature in verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Wind and storms are kind of this raw, unpredictable power of nature. And one of the main goals of religious, religious people throughout history is trying to figure out how can we gain control of that wild power in nature. So, you know, paganism, for example, did not only have one god of nature. The pagans believed in many gods of nature, right? There's the sun god, and there's the corn king, and there's the fertility goddess, and the god of the river, and the god of the sky. They had all, all of these gods, and they would offer their sacrifices to these gods. They're basically buying off these gods to say, you know, if I give this god what this god wants, this god will give me what I want. You know, lots of my cattle will have lots of babies, and my, my crops will be really productive, and we'll defeat our enemies, you know, when we... Uh, when we go to battle with them, these are all attempts to channel the power of nature for their own benefit. By the way, you might think that's something we've grown out of, trying to channel the power of nature for our own benefit. You know, C.S. Lewis points out that the only difference between magic and science is that magic doesn't work. (laughs) Science, they, they both have the same goal, a technique for getting power over the created world and using that power for our own benefit. They're trying to do the same thing. And, you know, there's another story in the Gospels that's similar to this one where uh, uh, Jesus speaks to, you know, he's on the sea again in a boat, and he speaks to the wind and the waves, and they stop. You know, there's this great storm that's happening. And what he's showing is that all the power of nature belongs to him, obeys him as its Lord. 
He's not just the sun God. He's not just the river God. He's not just the God of the mountain. He is the God of all creation. All things not only seen, not only things in nature, but all things unseen as well. All spiritual forces and powers in creation. And it's interesting that, you know, even in a scientific age, we often use the language of the laws of nature. Which, you know, we don't often think about that language, the laws of nature. What are we saying? It's an analogy, right? We're saying that basically every molecule in the universe is like a little citizen in a kingdom. And the kingdom has these laws, and they're very obedient little molecules that do whatever the rules of this kingdom are. And if we believe that there are laws of nature that the molecules obey, it's absolutely reasonable to say if there are laws of nature, there must be a lawgiver. Jesus is the one who instructs the natural world to operate in an orderly and predictable fashion. That's why we can have science, is because there are laws. And if he is the king and God of nature, and if he wants to make an exception to his laws by walking on water, he absolutely has the right to do that. (laughs) That's perfectly reasonable for Jesus to do that. And so he's showing himself, I am the one who gives the laws of nature. I'm the God, God of nature. So first, Jesus is the God of nature. Second, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that God's name in the Old Testament is the word Lord. And in your English Bible, the word Lord is always in caps, L-O-R-D. And the Hebrew word that's being translated there isn't actually the word Lord. It's the name of Israel's God, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And the name Yahweh is most importantly explained in Exodus 3. If you know the story where Moses... God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. And this is, this is what happens in that little exchange of the burning, burning, burning bush. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And when Jesus says in verse 20, it is I, or actually more literally, I am, he's evoking the name of the God of the Old Testament. Actually, seven times after this in the Gospel of John, this is kind of the opening I am. There are more I am's to come where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament that great majestic God of the Old Testament who has become a man. And, you know, one of the things about what does the God of the Old Testament do? What's one of the most famous stories of the Old Testament is the Exodus where he parts the waters of the Red Sea and he passes through the waters. And Psalm 77 puts it this way, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Jesus is the God of Psalm 77. Or actually Psalm 107, we sang Psalm 107, that, that great tune that we just we sang at the beginning of the service, talks about all these sailors who are out on the sea and they're in distress. And it says in Psalm 107, 28, He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. This is probably, John's probably alluding to Psalm 107, saying that's what Jesus gets in the boat, and he brings them to their destination. And that's what the God of Psalm 107 does. And so anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament and hears of Jesus walking on the water saying, this is Yahweh, 
This is the God of Israel. Now, when we understand that Jesus in this passage is Yahweh of the Old Testament, he's walking on the raging seas, it gives us a clue to a third way that Jesus is God. So he's the God of nature, he's the God of the Old Testament. Third, Jesus is the God of the nations. Jesus is the God of the nations. Because, you know, in the literature of the Old Testament, the sea plays a symbolic role representing the nations outside of Israel. So Israel is given the promised land. They are land people. And so all the nations, you know, the pagan nations surrounding Israel, they are like uh, the sea. The pagan nations are, are symbolically represented by the dangerous, wild, dark waters of the sea. And, you know, Jonah, when Jonah runs away from God, where does he go? He goes out on the sea to the sea people. And, you know, another example is in Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8 uh, talks about when the Assyrians were going to invade Israel in the 8th century B.C. And they're going to conquer the, the, uh, the northern kingdom in Israel. It says, Behold, the Lord is bringing, uh, is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all the channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on, in, uh, on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on. So when the pagan nations invade God's people, it's like the waters are flooding over, over the land. Or again in Isaiah 11. Knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It says just as the, the description of the conversion of all the nations of the world, they're described as the glory of God covering the earth the way the seas cover the earth. So when Jesus walks on the sea, symbolically, he's showing himself to be the king of all nations. He is the one who quiets the nations and ultimately will bring them to peace. Now, I'll tell you, one of the great sociological challenges that humanity faces is what unites the nations, the ethnic groups of the world. I mean, there's, because human cultures are so radically different. You have different customs, you have different languages, different religions, different governments. And it's almost always true whenever one culture says, we have the true culture that will unite all the cultures of the world, and they try to impose their culture on a foreign culture, they always end up oppressing the people of that culture. And so, you know, for example, you know, the Europeans coming to found our country, and they interacted with the Native Americans and tried to impose, you know, a kind of Western European culture onto the Native people. It's done a tremendous amount of harm and devastation. And in fact, you know, I was just watching a Netflix series a couple of weeks ago about the decade of the 2000s. I think maybe CNN did it, and every episode is about something about you know, the music of the 2000s or the, uh, you know, 9-11 and about the TV shows that were coming out and the politics that were happening. And, of course, one of the major things of that decade was the Iraq War. And one of the great difficulties in, of the Iraq War is, is that once we had control over Iraq, we were trying to put our political system into a culture that didn't necessarily match who we were. And it turned out to be far more difficult than we ever imagined it was going to be. Um, you can't just change a culture by laying another foreign culture on top of it. And yet, we can't just say, you know, who am I to, to judge another culture? You know, there are all kinds of... Uh, unjust things that are happening in cultures around the world or even in our own culture. 
So in some way, we have to be able to be critical of other cultures. If a culture is oppressing the poor or oppressing women or persecuting Christians, we have to be able to be critical of a culture. And so how can, uh, how can we call the nations to a vision for human life without the arrogance of imposing our culture, which is deeply flawed on another nation? How do you do that? Jesus Christ has proven to have the unique ability to both challenge and transform cultures while respecting their unique glory. You know, you'll find, I, I say this often, but you'll find nothing more ethnically diverse in the world than the universal body of Christ worshiping Jesus today around the world. I mean, go to Korea, go to Brazil, go to Bellingham, go to Germany, go to Uganda, and go to church in any of those places. It's going to be a radically different cultural experience, and yet all those people are worshiping Jesus. And they're all coming to this word and saying, God, speak to us. And they're all coming to this table with the bread and wine and being fed by Jesus. An incredibly diverse population. And you might be here and you might look around at this group of people and say, well, this doesn't look like a very ethnically diverse group of people. And we'd say, okay, we might not be good at being ethnically diverse. Jesus certainly is. And people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds are drawn to him. And Jesus in his global mission has proven that no one has been able to connect with diverse cultures as well as he can because he alone is the God of the nations. So the first message of this passage is Jesus is God. He's the God of nature. He's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the nations. And Jesus himself says that once you realize that, that Jesus is God, the most important result of that knowledge is so you should not fear. Because Jesus is God, you should not fear. If Jesus is our Savior, our King, our friend, we should not be afraid. And fear is an important part of this story. Uh, and what are some of the things this passage says that we tend to fear? Let me highlight three things. First, we fear darkness. See in verse 16, it says, When, when evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. So the setting of the story is darkness. And, you know, darkness means you can't see what's ahead. It means uh, I don't know what's in the future. I don't know where we're going. I don't know the path forward. That's what darkness is. And it's when we are in darkness that that is why we feel fear. And by the way, darkness in the Bible also has to do with, you know, moral failure. You know, we say when someone's living in darkness, you know, when they're living in light, they have God's wisdom and they have God's obedience and God's uh, guidance in their life. And when someone's in darkness, they're rebelling against God and they're making blunders and they're, they're hurting other people and hurting themselves. So, uh, it, being in darkness means that we don't know how to live. And then it says in the end of verse 17, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So it was dark. People, they didn't, know where, they didn't know where they were going, and God seemed to be absent. We are afraid when we don't know what is ahead of us or how to live, and Jesus seems absent. Second thing we fear is storms. You know, the other setting of the story is, of course, the storm of verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And weather is, of course, one of the most unpredictable powers in creation. I, you know, that 
show I was watching about the 2000s, another episode was on Hurricane Katrina. And one of the things it was saying was, you know, after 9-11, there was, uh, all of our focus was on protecting our nation against terrorism, fighting ter- terrorism abroad. And we had neglected, you know, developing FEMA for disaster relief in our own country. And so we were totally unprepared when this hurricane uh, hit New Orleans. And so we fear storms because they are unexpected, unpredictable crises that come into our life. So we don't know where we're going. We're afraid, like, unexpected things are going to come into our life and are going to devastate us. Third, we fear the supernatural. And actually, if you go read the other accounts of Jesus walking on water, it says that the reason the disciples were afraid was because they thought Jesus was a ghost. You know, they see Jesus walking out on the water, and there's like, not only is there a storm, there's a ghost, like, attacking us, and so they're afraid. And you might think, you know, as modern people, like, we're not afraid of supernatural powers. I I don't think that that's true. I mean, you know, some of you may have, you know, fears of like evil powers, you know, of satanic or demonic powers. I think a lot of people have fears of things like bad luck. You know, they might believe things about themselves. I'm like cursed and I just bring bad things to me. There's no, you know, scientific explanation for it. Some, Some of you might say, you know, one of the supernatural things I'm afraid of is God himself. And here is this sovereign Lord who has total control in my life. He can bring any suffering. He can bring any blessings that I want. He hasn't told me what he's going to do. And how do I know when God gets a hold of me, what's he going to do? I'm afraid of, afraid of God and his supernatural uh, intervention into my life. All of these things create an existence of fear that many of us face. I can't see into the future We live in a world where wild, unpredictable storms come out of nowhere and there's unseen supernatural world that has power to impact my life. So the question is, what is Jesus going to do about our fears? Well, you know, I mentioned earlier that paganism uh, was always about gaining control of the wild, unpredictable powers in the world. It said, you know, maybe we won't have any fears if we could get a hold of that power. And so when we come to a passage talking about Jesus walking on the water, we might start to think of him that way, that way we thought of those pagan gods. And I think actually many people, when they become Christians, that's what they're anticipating. They're like, oh, there's a God who controls everything. Well, maybe if I do all the things God wants, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to start praying, I'm going to start reading the Bible, I'm going to cut out the bad language out of my, you know, and, I'm, uh, and then if I do the things he wants, he'll start doing the things I want. And I'm going to start, I'm going to get the job I want. I'm going to start making money. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to fall in love. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get a house. And in, it, it's an exchange. I'll give God what he wants so that I can get what I want. That's what paganism is. And pretty soon you find out that's not what life with Jesus is like. Because Christians have to face all the darkness and storms that everyone else has to face. So what will the God of nature, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the nations, when he comes to us, what will he do with his power? What will happen if we bring Jesus into the boat the way the disciples do here? Well, verse 21 tells us, then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What Jesus does with his power is he takes us to our destination. He sees us to the end. You might say the way Paul puts it, he completes the work that he begins in us. 
That is what Jesus is going to do with his power, is he's not going to spare us from all the things that go with being human. He is going to see us to the end. And so it's not that Christians don't lose their jobs or watch loved ones uh, die or battle besetting sins. All of those things happen to us. But when we have Jesus by faith, when we walk into the dark future, we know that our shepherd will lead us. He will comfort us. He will speak to us along the way. And he can see the future with perfect clarity. And when unpredictable storms come, if we have built our house on Christ who is the rock, we will not be swept away. We will weather them with poise and courage and love. And when we think of the supernatural forces that we can't explain, we know that the one who loved us and died for us has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And so Jesus says to his disciples who are seized with fear, I am. I'm the God of nature. I'm the God of the Old Testament. I'm the God of all the nations. I'm the God of every human culture. Do not be afraid, and I will walk with you to the end. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this mysterious story of our Lord walking on the seas. Uh, Lord, would the strangeness of this story not repel us from the Lord, but give us a deep confidence that he will never leave us, that his grace is sufficient for us in our weakness, and uh, we pray that um, whatever darkness, storms, fears are present in this room in the lives of my brothers and sisters here, I pray that you would show us that you are our shepherd, that you walk on the seas. Give us confidence that you will see us to the end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.